Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called Ben Gay Introduced the Sales World to the Most Popular, Most Powerful Sales Training Material Ever Produced. This is part one of my interview with Ben Gay III. 35 years of top-level professional selling experience has made Ben Gay III a legendary figure in the sales world. He's a world-famous salesman, sales trainer, author, consultant, and speaker. He still sells on a daily basis. Gay has been the number one salesperson at every single company with which he has been associated with, and that's why it's not surprising that his book, The Closers, which explains selling the way it really is, is the most powerful book on selling ever written with over 3 million copies sold. In this interview, Ben reveals how his selling success sprang from a childhood fascination with the yearns of a former slave and local Civil War veteran in mid-century, which spawned an unquenchable passion for meeting interesting people. At his father's knee, he learned the amazing ability of a master closer to move people to action through the sheer power of talk. After a successful career as a youthful buyer at Macy's, he moved into to direct sales and discovered the power of multi-level marketing, where he met and worked with renowned salespeople, including the greatest master closers he's ever worked with, including James H. Rudker, Jr., J. Douglas Edwards, Fred Herman, Earl Nightingale, Zig Ziglar, Bill Dempsey, and Ray Considine, among others. In this no-holds-bar interview, he shares the absolute unvarnished truth with you while sharing fascinating anecdotes about his career. In this interview, you'll discover the keys to sales success. Always sell a competitively priced, quality product to qualified customers. How a closer thinks. The secret of sales closing power. How to get the sale that day. How your success depends on the effectiveness of your sales presentation, telephone sales scripts, and direct mail letters, and much, much more. So meet Ben Gay third, the person with the unique ability to explain selling in down-the-earth terms you can easily understand and apply. The Closers is the Sales Closers Bible, the one book you must have in your personal library. My interview with Ben Gay, the Master Closer, is one you shouldn't miss either. For more information on Ben Gay's seminars, books, and products in the Closer series, go to www.bengay.com. TheClosers.com. That's www.benbengayvthecloserscloser.com. Let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? Born in Springfield, Massachusetts, August 22nd, 1942, which means as we record this, I just turned 66 a few days ago. Happy birthday. Thank you, sir. What did your mom and dad do? Mother was the last generation that was raised to do volunteer work and wear white gloves and take care of the home. And dad, at that time, was a photographer. We, the cumulative we's, owned 42 portrait studios in and around New England called Hausman Gay Studios, Hausman being my uncle. And then the box brownie came along, the first camera that sold to the masses. And my father saw the end coming, and so 
as much as my uncle and said, buy me out or I'll buy you out, but this business isn't going to support both of us for much longer, although they've made a lot of money. The Box Brownie, the original mass-marketed camera where it looked like a little black box and held it about waist high, looked down, saw your image and clicked, and all of a sudden, you didn't need a portrait photographer anymore. Oh, I see. Who made that? Kodak. Oh, Kodak. Okay, so when that came along, you saw the portrait industry was on its way out? Yeah. Dad saw it. It toddled on. In fact, almost every town still has one somewhere in it, but they don't make much money anymore. They depend on class photographs, doing the senior class and the yearbook and so on. Did your uncle start that business? Dad and my uncle started it together. So the two brothers started it together? Brother-in-laws. Oh, brother-in-laws. Gotcha. So we sold out and went looking. I don't know if Dad had a target in mind or not, but we went from Massachusetts to the Los Angeles area, in particular Apple Valley, California. We were the first non-Indians to live there, Mom, Dad, and I. We opened up with the owner's reserve oil and gas, Apple Valley, California. Dad sold Roy Rogers his ranch and Pearl Bailey and her husband, Louis Beltson, their ranch. So he was in real estate. Uh-huh. Mother, however, went to her grave without admitting that she just didn't like the place, but she claimed that the high desert country gave her nosebleeds. Entirely possible, but I know that living in what looked like the moonscape at the time, it's now a thriving city with grass and hay fever problems and everything, you know, but back then, I just know my mother from New England, picture Catherine Hepburn, was not real happy in Apple Valley, California. So we started on the way to Florida by another real estate company, stopped in Atlanta to visit my father's uncle, my great uncle. That we were just talking about was Arnold Gay, who ran the stables out in Sandy Springs, near your home. And we stopped in to visit him. Dad hadn't seen him in years. I'd never met him or anything. And he had a lovely home and a nice business for a gay food brokerage company. And we were going to spend, I think, just a night or two. And when we got ready to leave, either my mother or I had mumps. So that gives you 10 days to recover. Then the other person, whoever had it first, was healed. The second person got it. We were there another 10 days. So in the 20-some-odd days, we were with Uncle Arnold. He talked Dad into settling in Atlanta and buying into the food brokerage business. So that was in 1948. My sister was born there. She still lives there. It's like there's an old movie, and I forget exactly the name of it, but it's sort of like Guess Who's Coming for Dinner. I mean, you stop for one night to do something. So how old were you when you moved to Atlanta? Six or seven. And you stayed there until how old? So I moved to California to run a cosmetic company out here, and by then I was, I'm guessing, 25, 1966. Wow, you come from a real history of entrepreneurs and businessmen. That was one of the nicest things that ever happened to me, Michael. Jim Newman, mm-hmm. the term comfort zone, which everybody else has worn out since then, but nevertheless, it's a great way to explain things. The kindest thing my family did to me, besides love me and try and give me a good education and so on, was by who they were and who they associated with, they set my comfort zone very high. We lived two blocks out the front gate of East Lake Country Club. Everybody that was anybody at the time belonged to East Lake. You know, the chairman of the board of Coca-Cola, Bobby Jones, the great golfer, was still alive. That was his home course. In fact, he was born where the third green is now. His house was there originally, and the Grand Slam trophies were in the trophy room and so on. And I had nothing to do with it. I didn't achieve all that. I just got to benefit from it. Yeah, you didn't know any different. Yeah, and that's really the greatest way to phrase it, Michael. I didn't know any different. Yeah, I heard that in an interview you did with a radio guy. So you were comfortable, and then you guys were talking about how your dad said, okay, it's time for you to go on your own. August 22nd, my birthday. So at 21, you... 
you were on your own. Right. You were staying in that family home, and then you moved out. And where would you move to? Well, if you're in Atlanta now, you'd be impressed. It's now called the Ponce, 75 Ponce Lee Avenue, Caddy Corner across from the Fox Theater, directly across Ponce Lee from the Jordan Terrace Hotel. Now it is once again the place to live. And they really dolled it up again. We were there because it had long since ceased being the place to live. And so my wife, who's now passed away, my first wife, Marsha, we got two rooms. It had no kitchen. We had like a bachelor apartment, the hot plate. We washed dishes in the bathtub, which was the room between the living room and bedroom. Now, we were on the 11th floor with a balcony if you climbed out the window, so we sat there and watched people come and go from the Fox Theater. They must have looked over thinking we were rich. It cost us $95 a month, and if you plugged in more than two appliances at a time, you knew every few was on the 11th floor. And if someone was in the bathroom and you wanted to go to the bedroom, you had to open the window, step out onto the balcony, open the other window, and step into the bedroom. Now, did you know you were in a dump at that time? Almost as soon as I walked in, because what I got was half of the bachelor furniture that my running buddy and first business partner, Jimmy Rucker, and I had. And, you know, I didn't mind that when it was just an unending series of beer and pool parties. But when you suddenly have a wife who's going to Crawford Long Hospital to become a nurse, and you're living in hardly what you promised her. You know, she grew up, not grew up, but when we were dating, she spent a lot of time at the country club, at the Atlanta Athletic Club downtown and out at the stables in Sandy Springs, and she thought she'd married into money. Well, she had, but unfortunately, I'd just been expelled from the family. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, darn. She was about 30 days late. That was when I spun around, and the term comfort zone hadn't been created yet, but that's when I realized, what is going on here? Younger, did you ever work a job? Did you have jobs? Oh, sure. We used to go down and volunteer to sweep out stores and stuff. I've worked since I was eight or nine years old for pocket change and stuff. And then when I was 14, I set up a lawn mowing business. And it's not just me with a lawnmower. I had about 20 kids working for me. So you were hustling as a kid? Oh, yeah. Dad let us be around nice things. But if you wanted money in your pocket, you earned it. So at 14, you had your lawn business. Mm-hmm. Did you do it with a little partner, or you just did it on your own? No, I started out on my own and rather quickly maxed out. You know, there's only so many lawns you can mow in Atlanta in the summer, in the heat and humidity and time. So I was complaining to my father one day, and he said, why don't you get people to work for you? And I said, they can go do it themselves. They don't need me, or vice versa. What's that going to do? And he said, well, you're pricing it wrong. I'm making up numbers because I really don't remember what it was back then. But let's say I charged $3 or $5 a lawn. He said, don't do that. Do an excellent job and tell them to pay you what they think it's worth. Well, it was magic. Whatever they were paying me before, it doubled. Once that happened, I said, well, this is great, but even now I'm still out of time. He said, now hire your friends and give them half the money. You collect and inspect. You're out of the manual labor business, and you get half of what 20 people are doing. So he taught you really what a real business is all about. Now, when you were getting those accounts, were you knocking on doors cold? Yeah. Had you done that before? Was this kind of new? Did you have a learning experience when it came to direct selling? Well, it was a learning experience somewhat, but back then we used to do a lot of fundraising. You're probably old enough to remember, not that they're out of business, but Krispy Kreme Donuts was a huge fundraising item, and saltwater taffy, and then I did stuff for the March of Dimes and old newspaper boy days. My dad would encourage me to do that because I could meet people and learn the skill. 
So at that age, when it came to a fundraiser in your school or whatever, were you always number one? Yes. Always? Always. Well, where did that come from? I don't know, other than comfort zone, little competitiveness. I had a younger sister who was an excellent golfer, which just galled me. She was seven years younger, so we had friendly competition going on. We had a big enough yard where we had a pitch and putt thing set up, and we were always competing there and so on. And then Dad taught me things that other kids didn't get taught because they hadn't been raised maybe by salespeople who own their own businesses. All my aunts and uncles, everybody, without exception, owned their own business. All of Dad's friends owned their own business or were president of some huge thing. What's some other lessons Dad taught you that you can really remember? I'll give you a quick little one there that when you said, were you number one in fundraising? And the answer was yes. If there was a physical product, I would knock on the door. When they opened the door, remember in Atlanta you have screen doors. When they opened the inner door, I would step off to the side, almost out of sight, which would cause them to open the screen door. And I would hand them the Krispy Kreme donuts. So they had them in their hand before they knew why I was there. They'd taken possession. And you just hardly ever miss anybody that way. Did your dad teach you that? Yeah. And I said, I can't wait to tell my friends. He said, don't tell your friends. <laughs> you nuts. You want to win the Columbia Bicycle? You know, selling greeting cards and stuff. You want to win the Columbia Bicycle? This is how you do it, son. So you were able to earn some pretty decent money as a kid on your own. I always had substantial to relative term. I probably have ten times that in my pocket now by accident. But back then, I was the kid with the money. When did you go to work for Macy's? I was standing outside Murphy High School my senior year. And it's funny how things go back to the end of that. You stop for dinner one night and 60 years later your family's still there. I was standing outside of Murphy High School doing nothing. And a friend of mine, Jerry Bell, came out the front door and down the steps. And I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going down to Macy's. They're hiring people to take back returns the day after Christmas. I said, who wants a one-day job? And he said, well, the odd thing is they train you for two weeks for one day. And they pay you for the training. I said, well, let me ride along with you. So I got in the car. That was probably against school rules. I don't recall because it was in the middle of the day, and suddenly I'm going downtown to 180 Peachtree Street, Atlanta, Georgia. And we go to the personnel department, fill out the applications. His girlfriend had some sort of in there. I forget where it was. So he was going to get hired, but I also got hired. And I really liked it. I was working in the housewares department, selling on the floor. For commission? Yeah, but it didn't amount to anything at that time. I was just to take back stuff the day after Christmas thing. I'm not terribly proud of this, but I heard a lady named Barbara Franz. God rest her soul. I'm 66. She was a grown woman. She's probably long since gone. But if she ever hears this, I appreciate her so much. I heard her say that the day after the day after Christmas, she was going on a two-week vacation, and she was the lady that hired me in the personnel department. So I went through my two-week training. I did my day after Christmas, which is like the second or third busiest day of the year. You know, people bring in back things, and you try and upsell them so you don't lose money on the transaction and so on. And the next day, I knew she was on vacation, so I just reported back to work. And two weeks later, I'm standing on the floor. I'd already been given some responsibilities. I was head of stock, which sort of makes you a glorified stock boy with a title and some authority. And she tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned, and I said, Miss Franz, how are you? <laughs> and she winked, and she said, that's very clever. And I understand you're doing an excellent job. Carry on. So they kept you on? They kept me on. Did you stay with them for a while? 
Five years, yes. Five years at Macy's. Yeah. I became the youngest assistant buyer and the youngest buyer in Macy's then 100-year-old history. Was it Macy's that was known for their return policy? Rich's was who was famous for it. Now Rich's is technically out of business, but they're both owned by the same. Yeah, so, well, you know who I'm thinking of. Who's the one with the shoes? Was it Rich's? Yeah, Rich's. They had a window on Peachtree Street where they put the returns, the high-button shoes. And the thing that galled us was in the window at Rich's was a steam iron that was Macy's private label. I frankly forget what it was called, but Rich's, their brand was AMC. So to show how generous they were, for years they kept a Macy's steam iron in their window that they'd taken back and given full credit for, knowing it was one of the few brands on earth that couldn't have come from their store. And they were so known for that policy of good customer service that even though I could give my mother employee discounts or let her shop and then I'd go buy it, you know, and get an employee discount, when it was something important, she said, well, I'll get it at Rich's. And I said, Mother, I'm getting you an employee discount. And it was called Davison's, as you know, at the time, owned by Macy's. And I'm getting you the employee discount. And she says, I know, but if I wanted to take it back, Riches will take it back without question. You know, they have the high-button shoes that were bought 60 years before, and they've got one of your steam irons in the window. And so I said, our policy is exactly the same. She says, I know, dear, I know. But Riches was in the mind of the consumer. Right. They had locked in that policy. Dick Rich, the then patron saint of riches, had built that image to the point, I don't think you could stand on the street corner and give away free steam irons and knock that down. They'd done such a great job of reassuring the customer that when you shop with us, everything is going to be okay. Up until this time, did you ever struggle with selling? No, almost every time I've struggled a little bit with selling or income, it's when I made a bad decision about what to sell. One of the first things I say in seminars, because I try and take huge chunks off at a time, if you know what I mean, so we can spend on the nuances and subtleties we can spend all day in a seminar, little things that will double or triple what everything else will make you. So I try and take it off in big chunks, and I tell them the first thing you learn that I learn the hard way is you always sell a quality product that's competitively priced, and you spend your day talking to qualified people. Now, first I had a friend I trained who was in prison at the time. I trained him to be in selling, and he was getting out just about the time that the Dodge Rams were first coming out. I frankly forget when that was, 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was. He was a handsome kid, and he'd learned and studied hard and read the books and so on. He said, all right, what should I do? And I said, all right, just to get started, I remember he was going to Portland or Seattle, someplace up in the northwest where he was from. I said, you go find Dodge dealership, and I don't care what you have to do, get on the lots of selling the trucks, and you meet the first truck that comes in, because I've been reading about in the trade papers. You meet the first truck that comes in with a Dodge Ram on it, and you chain yourself to the front bumper of the Dodge Ram. And I said, you will start making money in spite of yourself, and you'll learn how to sell. Because it was going to be such a hot automobile. If I had a young man today that said, well, I'm going to go into selling in a couple of years, what should I sell? I said, go find out who's going to have the Chevrolet Volt, which is coming out in, I think, 2010. The commissions will probably not be terribly high, but on the other hand, you'll be able to sell them in advance by a year. So the few times I've struggled a little bit is before I discovered slash invented, coined the term on that rule, quality products, competitively priced, spend your day talking to qualified customers. Whenever I've broken that rule, things get tough. But another example I use in seminars on the same point is, remember the Yugo? Yeah. 
Okay, the world's worst automobile, cheapest automobile in the world, new, and the world's worst. They now sell them as collector's items, and people are turning them into planters on their lawns. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tell me about the time you answered a classified ad and met Bill Dempsey. How old were you, and where were you in your life? I was 22 years old. So this was right after Macy's? Yeah, during that period of time. There was a period of time when I worked at Macy's seasonally traveled on the road as a manufacturer's rep. When I say seasonally, they needed someone with my talent and experience and so on in the toy department and various places as a sort of a temporary buyer, bring in the pinch hitter, the heavy hitter. And so I would go in for seasonal things if it corresponded with a slow time in whatever I was really doing. Dad was a clothes horse, and I don't mean that outlandishly, but he just always looked good. When he died, one of the greatest debates we had in our family is what suit he would want to be buried in, because how he looked was really important. Thing. Picture James Cagney as a young man, the actor. Dad and James Cagney look like twins. So he was a good-looking guy. Yeah, and if you've ever seen Yankee Doodle Dandy, to me, that's like watching a family movie. My dad was a small guy like Cagney was, and he strutted when he walked. How tall was he? Oh, I don't know, 5'8", I'm guessing. When he walked into a room, you knew he had arrived. He looked good, he dressed good, he carried himself well, and he was just a presence, you know. Were your uncles like that? No. They were normal human beings, but Dad was the one. I've also suspected at times that when we drove to L.A. and wound up opening up Apple Valley, I really believe, and my wife and I have talked about it many times, I think Dad was going to L.A. to get into the movies. Because he was a good dancer, he'd been a professional diver, and he was used to being the center of attention. I can't quite picture why a guy from Alabama who owned a big business in New England would suddenly drive all the way across the country with no specific plan. Yeah, you're probably right. Yes, I always had that feeling. But anyway, at the same time as I answered the ad, Marsha, my first wife, invited my mother and father up to the apartment. Had they been there yet? No. Okay, first time to the apartment. First time to the apartment. How long had you guys been married, you and Marsha? Oh, married and living there just a few weeks. So there's a knock on the door, and we had made it look as nice as you could. You know, picture early Danish that was old. Comes in every bachelor apartment, and then you open the refrigerator, and there's a jar of mustard and two beers. And we had a wicker sofa that we bought somewhere and spray painted green in our broke days, my bachelor days, and that somehow got moved in. I think Rutgers, my running buddy, was kind enough to let me have that while he kept the dining room table that was cut in a big oval that we made out of plywood, painted black, and put the Playboy bunny in the middle of it. Marcia said, No, we won't be taking that with us. So anyway, the door is knocked on. Open it. Dad used to like bourbon and soda, so I went and bought what I could afford, a pint. Looks like a hip class of bourbon and a little soda and offered it to them. And he stood there looking around. He says, oh, well, where's the rest of the apartment? <laughs> I said, well, follow me. So I led him through the bathroom to the rest of the apartment. And there were probably, with my luck, dishes soaking in the bathtub. He says, oh, this is lovely, and came back out. Oh, we didn't invite them to dinner. Even we were not that stupid. We invited them to come by and have a drink, and then we'd go out to dinner, which he was going to pay for. So finally, it got a little awkward. I was sitting down. My mother was sitting down. Marsha was sitting down. And he's still standing there in the middle of the room, sipping his little bourbon soda. And he didn't like that either, because, of course, I didn't get the brand that he would have gotten. And finally, he said, well, let's go. And I said, well, Dad, sit down and relax. He said, please don't be offended by this. I just really don't want to sit on your furniture. <laughs> 
So if somebody tells you not to be offended by something like that, you're obviously not offended. Forty years later, talking about it, yeah. it was a wound. You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's hardtofindseminars.com. So you're really humiliated. Oh, that was, you know, add back to the comfort zone problem. So right about that time, this is really interesting to me anyway, Michael. I have looked at worn ads for me. I've looked at them many times if I had one ad running in it to see how it was drawn. But for me, looking to do something, I have looked at one issue of the classified in my entire life. It was back when they were separate papers, the Atlanta Constitution, the morning paper. And I looked under help wanted, and there was nothing there I could do, a problem I still have to this day. <laughs> Thank goodness I've been selling. There's nothing else I can do. And then I went over where it said business opportunities, and I didn't know even what that meant. I looked down, and there was one ad that caught my eye, and it said, if you know anything about marketing plans and want to make more money, call this number. So I called that number. Rather quickly, I was talking to Bill Dempsey. Tell the listeners who is Bill Dempsey. Bill was one of my early sales mentors. He was a guy who recruited me into my own business for the first time. And we've been in touch, lost touch, got back in touch over the years. But were it not for Bill Dempsey, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today. There's several other people along the way I could say that about, too. But he was the first one other than my father. And what was the company? It was called Holiday Magic. And Holiday Magic, what kind of company it was were they? It a cosmetic company, and back then they called it multi-level marketing. Now it's network marketing, but it's the same thing. It started in September 1964. I joined it a year later rather quickly. It was the largest direct sales multi-level company in the world. There were multi-level companies before that, but none this big? No. Nutribio was the granddaddy that sort of sprung a lot of them, and my boss had worked for Nutribio. Okay, so they were before Holiday Magic? Yeah, but not nearly as big. Bob Cummings, the actor, was their front man, and he was a health nut, so he was known for it, so it was a natural tie-in. And from that spun off Amway and Shackley and so on. Was Amway going at the same time, Holiday Magic? Oh, yeah, Holiday Magic. It was bigger than Amway and Shackley combined at the time, not what they've become. We were in 25 countries, and we had five different companies in each of the 25 countries. I forget the math. I think it comes to about 100 when I was running the whole thing. I think I have 125 companies under me. Now, you said you were running the whole company? Oh, well, uh, first I joined as a distributor. Let's get back to that. Yeah, let's go back. Built and see you went in. Yeah, I answered the ad. If you know anything about marketing fans, want to make more money, call, blah, blah, blah. So I called it. I'm talking to Dempsey. And it was funny, I was on either Peachtree or West Peachtree Street in front of an old colonial store that was a little long in the tooth. It was a grocery store. And in front of the grocery store, this is before cell phones, was the payphone. And this happened to be the payphone that when you drove around and picked up your groceries, the clerks slammed the buggies into. So if you were making a call from that phone, it was punctuated every 60 seconds or so by another buggy hitting the edge of the phone booth. Plus, when you call for payphone, you echo. You may not know that, but trust me, <laughs> those of us who spent a lot of time in payphones back when the booths were everywhere, it echoed. So I'm talking to Dempsey, and I said, hello, this is Ben Gay, Brown Gay Food Brokerage Company. And he says, well, hi, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. I didn't point out that the Gay and the company name wasn't me. In fact, originally, what well, my father, it was Arnold Gay, and then Dad bought the company from him. So I'm thinking about looking at other opportunities to add to my empire. Your portfolio. Yeah, my portfolio. <laughs> I'm going on and on. And Dempsey, who was about 15 years older than I was, a little more mature, to say the least, and had been an Arthur Murray dance instructor. He was a hardcore salesman. 
he says, after I went on and on about how important I was, he said, Mr. Gay, let me explain something to you. I'm not the man standing in the phone booth answering want ads. <laughs> yeah. That's you. And I said, where are you? And I told him, I'm at the Colonial Store on West Peachtree Street or Peachtree, where they're right near the fort there. And he said, I have good news for you. I'm at 1447 West Peachtree Street, Trust Company of Georgia building. I'm on the third floor. And if you're standing in front of my desk in 10 minutes, I know where you are. You can make it. In 10 minutes, I will explain this business to you. If not, don't ever call this number again. He hung up. So Rucker had come up in a car while I was on the phone call, and he says, who are you talking to? I says, no, we don't have time to talk right now, Rucker. Let's go. You were in your Nash Rambler? Yeah, I was in my Nash Rambler. <laughs> and we raced over to 1447 West Peachtree Street, zoomed up the elevator, and talked to Dempsey and discovered that it wasn't like a job. That was the important part. I didn't understand business opportunities. It wasn't a job job. It was you bought some product and went out and sold it. Well, the product was $91.42 to buy what they called a one-pack. It was one of everything in the basic line that Holiday Magic offered. Did you catch them individually or in a group? Well, individually, the two of us. They did have opportunity meetings and so on, which is where I learned how to speak. And by a coincidence, on September 15, 1965, in the same office in a different interview than mine, Zig Ziglar joined the business. So we started literally on the same day in the same business and wound up as friendly competitors and I wound up a year or so later as president of the company and each done rather well with it. But $91.42 was almost exactly $91.42 more than I had. So that was either payday or close to payday. I went out to the office, picked up my check and Rutgers check, which we used to do. We were buddies, you know, sewn together at the hip. And there's two things I can write. I print everything. I can write my signature and I can write Jimmy Rucker's signature, James H. Rucker Jr. So I cashed his check went back downtown by myself, gave it to Dempsey, got the one pack. And I had a wife. He was still a bachelor. It's my justification. I saw Rucker that night. He said, did you pick up my paycheck? I said, I did, Rucker. You know, we're in the cosmetic business. And he said, you look good to me, too. But did you get my paycheck? And I said, yes, that's how come we're in the cosmetic business. <laughs> yeah. And then I found out you had to put up some more and some more. And before we were done, we'd invested $5,000, $91.42. And Rucker had sold his car with a little help from me. 1957 Chevrolet, he's still mad at me about that. So you bought into the thing about five grand, and you've been number one at selling a lot of stuff. What did you think about the multi-level stuff? I mean, were you into it? Yeah, it looked like magic to me. I mean, I was the typical naive network marketer. They didn't call it network in those days, but, you know, oh, five, get five, get five, get five, and I get rich by the six months. Is that what Dempsey showed you? He showed me that was possible. Did he show you his checks? Yeah. How much was he making at that time? About 10000 a month then. 1965, and the business was less than a year old. Yeah, the money's what gets you. Oh, sure. Got me. And people listening to this go, oh, he's only making 10000 a month. Keep in mind, this is 1965. It's like making, well, I don't know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a month today. Yeah, I know the house that we grew up in, when we were born, 1965, that house cost my father maybe $33,000. What's it worth today? You oh, it's probably more than half a million. Yeah. So using that type of math, it was a lot of money, and he had some excuse to go down the stairs, which gave him an opportunity to show me his brand-new Lincoln and two or three other people 
those brand new Lincolns that were sharing the office with him and so on. So we were in, but then, because I'd been number one other places and had done well until I got married too young and tried to put a wife in nursing school who wasn't working, and I decided that I could do it my own way. They had scripts and presentations and everything, and I decided to wing it. And I did for six months. I winged it, and I didn't make a penny. Not only did I not make a penny, Michael, not a penny changed hands. Oh, really? So you wanted to do it your way. You were number one in everything, and it didn't work. Yeah, nobody taught me any scripts before. My total sales training before was at Macy's, will that be cash or charge, and upselling. You know, you bought a frying pan with our spatulas, you know, that type of thing. I bought a lawnmower, and considered a riding lawnmower or whatever. Now, with Holiday Magic, they were pretty scripted. They had a system for selling. Everything. Did Zig Ziglar have anything to do with any of the scripting and stuff, or was that all done? Well, over time, he did, because by then I was running the company, and I drew from people who knew more than I did. Earl Nightingale was the voice of Holiday Magic. Dr. Napoleon Hill, thinking Grow Rich, worked for me the last two years of his life. Jay Douglas Edwards was one of our house trainers. And Zig had done reasonably well selling cookware in Columbia, South Carolina, but he was no superstar. He just could speak better than the rest of us. Did he become a superstar in Holiday Magic? Yeah. We laugh about who won to this day. There was a year-long contest. First prize was Rolls-Royce. First announced prize. But Bill Patrick later told me first prize was president of the company. So Zig won the roles and I became president. What was the sales trainer guy? Douglas Edwards. Yeah, tell me about him. Doug Edwards had sold insurance. He had a voice from God. You heard Earl Nightingale speak. Yes. Okay. Picture that deep, rumbling voice. Jay had a voice like that, but his was clearer. Earl, as he got older, got so rumbly, almost couldn't understand him. Was Douglas selling with Holiday Magic? Yeah, but mainly we used him as a trainer. Sort of a waste of time to have him just selling, because he could stand in front of a group of people and make them feel like they learned something, whether they did or not, and a lot of them did, and give them confidence. And so Doug was successful before I met him anyway. He was working with a company called American Sales Masters, and he and the Wheaties champion Bob Richards and Fred Herman, the great sales trainer from Cedartown, Georgia, all worked for American Sales Masters. What was American Sales Masters? It was a seminar company. It was sort of a forerunner Peter Lowe's operation. Travel around, five or six speakers, fill up a big auditorium, and I met Doug by winning a contest in Atlanta to get to go to Miami, Florida, to the J. Douglas Edwards Seminar and have a private dinner with Doug. And that's how you met him? on the private dinner? Mm-hmm. He died four or five years later. He'd never written a book. His family came to me and said, would you write a book by Doug Edwards? And I said, well, that, you know, I'm good, but he's dead. And they said, well, take his seminar recordings. He had done six classic recordings that were well-known. He said, start that as a starting point. Well, when I said I wrote the book, things casually spoken from the stage frequently don't read well. I just made it read well. It's true to Doug, and even things that I wrote from scratch, people will read the book today. Yeah, what's the book called? Sales Closing Power. It's out of print now because my own material, the closers, thanks to Doug and Zig and all the people who trained me, is so much better. We got where we couldn't give Doug stuff away, and that's also partly because things get dated. He was talking about the puppy dog clothes in one of the seminars. Did that come from him? As far as I'm concerned, it did. I don't know, but he was one of the first giants I met, Red Motley and people like that that preceded him, Elmer Wheeler. Had you ever met Elmer Wheeler? In his old age, I met him once. I think I met Red Motley, but I couldn't swear to that. I was supposed to, and I forget if something happened or not, or he was in a big crowd or what have you. So what one mentor out of all these guys did you really look up to, or really took to their personality, or what they taught you in relationship to professional self? William Penn Patrick, Bill Patrick, who was the head of Holiday Magic, he owned it, chairman of the board, 
after I became president. He was a huge factor in my life. My dad was a huge factor, and that's not just on my, you know, dad is a wonderful guy like we all think was a professional, world-class salesman. So that was a huge effect on me. Well, what did Patrick teach you? Can you think of anything? Picture Jim Rohn. Bill was the forerunner to Jim Rohn. In fact, Bill trained Rohn's mentor, the one he talks about all the time. Who's Rohn's mentor? Well, he talks about a guy named Earl Schoff, who was with Nutribio, which is where they all came from. But the guy who really trained him, and I don't know why he doesn't give him more credit, is a guy named Bill Bailey, William Bailey. He was the first president of Holiday Magic, and he and Bill Patrick had a falling out, and Bailey was thrown to the curb and went off and started. He was a spinoff company, Best Line. And Jim Rohn was sort of Best Line's answer to me. So Best Line was multi-level, right? Oh, yeah. So Jim Rohn went with Best Line. He was in the MLM business, too. Sure. Very interesting how some of these giants in sales were involved in the MLM. Yeah, well, we all come from the same place. So Jim Rohn was with Best Line. What were they selling? Chemicals. Home care cleaning chemicals. Did they grow like you guys or not really? They never got as big as we were, but they were big. There used to be a game they played. We bought a 3,500-acre ranch up in Clear Lake, and Bill and I were sitting outside a trailer at the time because the big house was being built, and Bill was a plane collector. We had 42 airplanes, the only flying B-29 in the world, with a Stratofortress, a Learjet, a P-51 Mustang, which unfortunately got killed in up there, and all these antique planes, plus a stable of regular planes that supported the business by teaching flying lessons and so on. And so we're sitting outside the trailer one day, and I had this deep rumbling in my trailer. I said, what is that? Well, it was Bill Bailey in his bomber coming over and dropping sacks of flour on us. He was bombing (laughs) (laughs) bombing the ranch. And it was his way of announcing he had bought the 3,500 acres next door. Then we bought a 110-foot yacht called the Principia. It was actually a boat that we built. It wasn't even its original purpose. But it was one of those old classic-looking ships, you know, and spent a ton of money redoing it. And I say we. These are not the ways I would have chosen to spend money, but it was his money. My job was to make it. Bill was in charge of spending it. So we're sitting in Sausalito one day on the fantail of this luxurious yacht, and we look up, and here comes a yacht exactly like it. I mean, exactly and ours was the Principia. I think this one's called the Olympus or something like that, Olympia. And it pulls in. We've been wondering why the slip next to us had been vacated for about two weeks. And in pulls Bill Bailey and Jim Rohn on their matching boat to Bill's. So there was a lot of that type of stuff going on. It was an interesting time. But the people had great effect on me. Therefore, would be some people you've never heard of, Walter Wells, one of the great salesmen that ever lived. He was in Atlanta. What did he sell? I met him in Holiday Magic. But he sold cars and land and this and that. He was 15 years or so older than I was. One of the reasons I know all these people that are either dead or retired or in the process of retiring or something is keep in mind they were 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 years old. I was 22, so I was always the kid among them. And Earl Nightingale, what was his interaction with Holiday Magic? Like a spokesperson? The first day I joined the company, Bill Dempsey handed me an old beat-up copy of Think and Grow Rich. It's a scratched-up record, which is sitting about 10 feet from where I am right now, called The Strangest Secret. And he said, if you'll read this and listen to this, it'll change your life. So I did. Thinking Grow Rich, it took me a long time to get. I guess I was too much of a simpleton. But now I read it once a year. I've read it over 40 times. I start January 1st of every year and read it again. And The Strangest Secret, I have it on video, VHS, so I can't get rid of my VHS. And uh, I watch it once a month just to get me back on track. So I've watched those two things and so on. Now, all of a sudden, I'm being rapidly moved up the line because of my speaking ability. That's the only reason I was president of the company, keep in mind. 
fine. I have a high school education. I was a good salesperson, but there's a huge difference between a good salesperson and running a company that rather quickly was in 25 countries and taking in a million dollars a day in cashier's checks. Were you catching holiday magic in front of tens of thousands of people? Oh, yeah. I became the front man. If Bill Patrick wanted to speak, he was still the big draw. I was sort of assistant God. And then we got to where we can't afford to have both of them in the same place. Were you comfortable speaking? Oh, yeah. Not the very first time, but rather quickly I got where I really liked being in front of the room. To the point today, Michael, my family kids me about it. If you get 10 or 12 people in our living room, I find excuses to go barbecue or wash the dishes or something so I don't have to interact with a small group. And maybe interact is, is the problem. Versus standing in front of 10,000 people, I'm more comfortable there than anywhere else on earth. Are you introverted in some ways? I'm quite shy, believe it or not. I'm paid not to be, but I'm very shy. The worst time for me in a seminar, I was funny, I was just signing them up for the seminar in Raleigh in January, and instantly, I mean, the deal is just, you know, they're calling me back again. It wasn't a hard sale by any means, but instantly, as I'm saying, fine, I'll reserve the date for you and so on, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've got to go meet. They probably had turnover. They're not the same people they were last time. Now, I'm not talking about from the stage. I'm talking about that meet and greet before, after, that still gives me the willies. I know how to do it. You would think I was the most confident person in the room, but I just can't wait to get out of there. Introduce me. You know, <laughs> just introduce me. For more exclusive interviews on business, marketing, advertising, and copywriting, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Oh, that's interesting. So when you were speaking in front of 10,000 people pitching holiday magic, did you have a scripted pitch? Did you develop that, or were you just speaking from the hip? Well, both. If I was speaking in front of 10,000 people, it probably wasn't a normal opportunity meeting. The first time I ever spoke in front of 10,000 people was at the Long Beach Arena, and it was a Holiday Magic International Convention. And the next time it was for Stay Power, our motor oil additive company, and the next time it was probably for Bob Cummings' Vitamins. Same marketing plan, same everything, same scripts, you just change the name of the product. All right, so you went on to represent other multi-level companies. Yes, but they were all in the Holiday Magic family. We owned all those. Okay, I'm with you. So those, I'd get up and talk. You know, they're already in the business. So I might have a little 10 bullet point thing to make sure I hit the subjects I meant to get up there work. But most of our business, at 7.59, somebody walked to the front of the room and said, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is, I'm a general distributor with either Holiday Magic, Bob Cummings Vitamins, State Power, whatever, Ameriprise, and Bob Banks Clothing. And it's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to tonight's special meeting, blah, blah, blah. And that speech went on word for word for about 40 minutes. Then you introduced the film, and the film came on, and, you know, it showed whatever company we were talking about. And then at the end, it said, Earl Nightingale says that 95% of all Americans are either dead or broke at age 65. If you'd like to be part of the other 5%, turn to the person who brought you here tonight and ask him how you can get started in company name. Lights came on. The person next to you got out the legal pad and drew four circles, explained the benefits of each position, and asked which one best suits your needs. And if you picked one, you were in. If you didn't pick one, then they explained further benefits of each position. And, you know, the money went up and the examples of how it happened went up. There were six versions of that close, and you had to know them word for word or you'd be thrown out of the meeting. And that's how we got a group of just ragtag folks. You know, I pulled them off milk trucks, 
the president of the Canadian operation, was the favorite waiter of mine at the dock in Tiburon, California. And I liked the way he delivered the flaming shish kebab 60 days after I chatted with him and was head of our Mexican operation. Because if they would stick to the script, and they didn't have much choice, Glenn Turner was a bit of a problem with our script. <laughs> if they'd stick to the script, you could put them into any situation. The head of the state power operation was a gentleman named Kay White. He was one of our top distributors in Holiday Magic. I called him in one day, and I said, Kay, state power is that thing you've heard us talk about. Well, it's got an office building now and so on, and the guy we thought was going to run it really isn't up to it. And it was an old friend of Bill Patrick's, and one of those personal things, you know, trying to put a friend to work. I said, so you go over there. And he said, I don't know anything about motor oil ashes. I said, Kay, it's the exact same script, marketing plan, discounts, and everything. Just stop saying cosmetics. And he went over there and did a fantastic job without missing a beat. So we did it based on standardization, absolute and complete standardization. Bear Bryant, the old football coach, said his job was to take 40 extremely different young men and in spring training, before they faced the enemy, to get them to operate with a single heartbeat. And that's what we attempted to do. We're pretty successful at there. And I do that now with all my clients, Dixie Home Crafters, the second largest, fastest growing home improvement company in the world based in Atlanta and up and down the East Coast. That's all we work on, get the presentation right. We tell them, we're not even paying you to sell, we're paying you to give demonstrations. Because if you'll give the demonstration by the script, you will sell. You don't have to worry about that. Hugh Harris, the chairman of the board of the company, says if he get monkeys, driver's licenses, he could run the business without people. And I said, well, you have to have a parrot to go along with the monkey. Monkey drives the appointment, the parrot gives it. And the joke in Dixie Home Crafters is the answer to all questions, just about, you know, all sales questions is somebody yells at you, it's the presentation, stupid. Elmer Wheeler was really onto this, tested sentences that sell. Do you remember the research he was doing on all that? I know of the research. My favorite one is the egg story. Are you familiar with that? When he was doing that one egg or two? One egg or two in the milkshake. And he not only exploded their sales, because back then F.W. Woolworth, our younger listeners, they may not remember, was a five and dime, the forerunner to Kmart, Walmart, so on. And it was the largest retail operation in the world. It was also, because of their lunch counters, the largest restaurant operation in the world, casual dining though it was. They had, I'm making up numbers, but something like 80 miles of lunch counters in all their stores. Mm -hmm. They were the largest owner of spoons, forks, knives. They sold more of any commodity you could name. They sold more of it than anybody else. And Elmer Wheeler came up with the thing of back then people would put a raw egg in a milkshake. Some would, some wouldn't. So he put eggs under the counter. They used to be bow-shaped in an average store would be four or five bows where the lady could walk in amongst her customers. At the top of the bow, under the counter, they put stacks. What do you mean, bow? Well, the counters were sort of in a wave, because that way they could get a lot more seats. Oh, I see, yeah. Lengthwise. But each waitress had the inner half of her circle, so to speak, and she took care of those people around her and maybe halfway down to the next bow. And so at the peak of the bow, under the counter, he put stacks of eggs. After sitting there for about a half an hour and just watching, because they'd ask him, how can that be? increased sales, watched it and watched it and watched it and finally said, eggs, that's it. 
So he trained them every time anybody ordered a milkshake to reach under the counter, pick up two eggs in one hand, hold them up in front of the customer, say one egg or two. And enough people who had not thought of having an egg said one, and enough people who normally had one egg said two. It had a fantastic effect at F.W. Ward, but it was like McDonald's is today. It created an egg shortage all over the United States. Wow, did it really? Yeah. McDonald's today, you know, let's say they didn't have chicken McNuggets. They don't just come out with them one day. They go give the chicken producers a year's warning that it's about to happen or else they would eat up every chicken in the United States. That's just incredible. And it's incredible what one sentence can do for a large company like that, a scripted selling sentence, a tested sentence. So what do you say to all those, let's say, non-professional people in the field of saying who want to just wing it compared to delivering scripted sales messages? Keep your resume in shape for a salary job. So it sounds like if everything's scripted, becoming a professional salesperson in some ways is a no-brainer as long as you can follow the scripts. Absolutely. I don't understand why I am still a high-paid sales trainer 43 years after I started being a high-paid sales trainer. It would seem to me that if word of my first talk had spread, or word of Zig's first talk, or Brian Tracy's, or Earl Nightingale, or Elmer Wheeler, or anybody, if something had spread, and the one egg or two is a great example. It's a short script, but it's a script. They weren't allowed to deviate one egg or two. And they were also taught, if the person said none, please, to put it down, and that's the end of the conversation. McDonald's, probably, I'm making up numbers, probably makes a billion dollars a year saying what? Do you want fries with that? How difficult is that? Utter and complete standardization. And I just don't get it why people don't understand that. Now, for those listening, we ought to make this clear. I don't mean, you know, people say, oh, that's a can presentation, like in The Music Man or The Tin Man or Gary Glenn Ross or whatever the name of that thing was. I'm not talking about being an old drummer who walks in with a shine shoes, firm handshake, and says exactly the same thing to everybody every time. What I am talking about is you have a plan. If you're selling in home, like my friend at Dixie Home Crafters, I know that other things happen. We don't have in our script what happens when a dog runs into the room and poops right in the middle of the rug. We don't have what happens when the kid falls down and bangs his head and the mother has to get up and go do something about it. So there's all those things that can change. But what you do is you have a plan, a track to run on, point A to point Z. And within that, we sell, for instance, in the Closer series, we sell a thing called the Executive Package. And it's our most popular item, and it has everything in the line and lifetime subscriptions to everything and so on. I really feel good because when I sell it to someone, they now know if they'll listen to it and apply it. They know everything I know about selling. So it's a sales career in a box. We have a way of explaining it. You know, you get this, you get this, you get this, you get this. Now, if you interrupt me, I'll go back to where I dropped off and pick it up. But what I like to do in front of seminars is I have people come up with blindfolds on. All the product is on the table. And I say, pick one up. Now, I've already given them the script beginning to end. I say, here's a script I'm going to use to sell you. At the end of this seminar, I'm going to ask you, or at lunch breaks, whatever, to go to the back of the room and buy it. But now I want you to listen to the script I'm going to use to get you to do it, because you can learn from the script even while I'm selling you from the script. But then I have them come up and pick up an item. Now they're familiar with how I describe things. And they pick the item, and I start at that word. Now, I'm making up numbers because I really have never counted them. But let's say that there are 20 items in the executive package counting subscriptions. You can shuffle them like a deck of cards. 
and I'll give you word for word, complete with the right emphasis, the hesitations, the ahs, everything about any one of the products in any order you want. And we do the same thing with Dixie Home Crafters, whether we're selling roofing or gutters or siding or windows or doors or the new space-age insulation that goes in the attic. It's called Diamond Barrier. That's a heating cooling portion of your power bill, 30 to 40%. It's word for word, every time, all the way. See, one of the things, Michael, just fascinates me in the direct mail industry, and I bet you've done a lot of this, you write a letter, and it's going to go to everybody in zip code 95667. You don't write a different letter for each house, do you? No. Okay. You write the best letter you possibly can that raises all the objections you can possibly think of in advance and knocks them down, that gets them curious, that gets them stimulated, has a call to action. And you work on the letter and you mail it and you test and you change something, you test and you change something. The rules in selling or direct marketing are test, 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 as you know. So when you get finally the letter right, then that's the only thing you send. Anyone listening to this who's old enough to get their own mail has probably, in the last two or three years, several times opened a letter from the Wall Street Journal that says, this isn't verbatim, but 25 years ago on a bright sunny day, two young men graduated from college. And today, one of them is the chairman of the board, and the other one is in middle management in the same company. And the letter goes on to say, in essence, the difference was one took the Wall Street Journal and one didn't. Do you remember that letter? As a matter of fact, I just interviewed a gentleman named Denny Hatch, and I've got the whole story on that. I just got an email from Denny moments ago. Uh, thank you. Well, I interviewed him. I got the full interview up on my site, and he talks about the whole story, and I called the circulation director and established that that one letter was worth over half a billion or a billion dollars. It's a great story. Easy. Yeah, easy by now. And that's called their control piece. They do send out other letters, but the goal of the other letters is to get better than that letter, and in 40 years, They've never gotten better. No control piece has ever beaten that letter. In fact, I don't know exactly how they did it because it wouldn't be word for word, but the theme of it is so identifiable, they copyrighted it. And if I write a letter to my people and say 25 years ago, two people graduated from selling school, and one's the chairman of the board and the other one's a moderate salesperson, the difference is the closers, and they find out about it, I'll get a letter from their lawyer. Oh, very interesting because I asked Denny, were there any successful promotions based on that same theme? And he couldn't really recall any but people have tried to use it. But that's interesting. You could copyright that theme. Yeah, the theme, like Harley Davidson copywriting the sound of their engine, which they did. So that's the value of a presentation. When you get a good one, then that's what you do day in and day out. The closer's material, we have sold millions and millions of units, and the script hasn't changed, I'm guessing, in 20, 25 years. I got it right 20, 25 years ago. How many books have you published so far? Units of the closer. Was the closer your first book? No, I wrote other books first that were not terribly successful. I tried to do a knockoff on Lazy Man's Way to Riches, Joe Carbo's book. Yeah, what was it called? Mine was called Easy Wealth. Were you trying to sell it direct mail? Yeah. I thought Carbo's letter was sort of rough around the edges, so clean might not be sophisticated. <laughs> Didn't work. Didn't work. Joe Carbo, years later, said, how'd you do with that book, son? We were sitting next to each other in the four-day seminar. Joe Sugarman was running, and I said, not very well. And he said, I laughed the first time I saw that. He said, I thought, oh, that poor young guy, he doesn't get it. 
That's funny. And I didn't. I thought, well, if he can do it with that crummy letter. To answer your question, I've written over the years, somebody told me the other day, I think we have one of each at least, about 12 books on selling and living successfully. And I've ghostwritten for other sales trainers another dozen or so. My introduction, we say, you probably have one of my books in your library, whether you know it or not. So the closers was your big hit. Yeah, but I'll tell you, there's a funny thing there. I didn't write the first draft of the closers. I founded the 800 answering service business. I opened the first call center in the world. It was called the National Communication Center. It was in 1976, located in Shingle Springs, California. How did that occur? I was a traveling salesman. A guy came to me with an idea, you know, traveling salesman speaker, and toll-free numbers were just coming into common usage. Big companies like IBM used them late at night to transmit huge amounts of data from point A to point B, but you and I didn't know about 800 numbers or have any reason to use them, and they were very costly. It cost $10,000 per line to have an 800 number. That bought you 240 hours of time. At the end of the month, if you were out of time, then you got a bill for overtime. If you were under, let's say you only used 100 hours, then the other 140 went away, and you owed them a new $10,000. Therefore, every home in America wasn't destined to have an 800 number, to say the least. So I figured out a way. I thought it was a pretty neat idea, T-minus four cell phones and everything. Pretty neat idea would be for people like me, speakers who are traveling around the country, and they're here, and they're there, and nobody knows where they are, to have a place where you could call toll-free, leave a message, and I could call toll-free and pick it up. Well, it was a neat idea, but there were only about 15 of us that were busy enough to need the service. So I was deeply in trouble right off the bat. So we expanded it. Okay, we'll do it for anybody who wants a toll-free number. Then we'll start taking orders. We didn't take orders when we first started, and I got Sharper Image, the Tollheimers, to join us. We were their first answering service. I just bought a watch from him the other day at his new company, Joe Solo. Anyway, it grew and grew, and it became the largest answering service in history, and it was all successful. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we're always looking for new ways to talk somebody into joining us. When I started that business, 95% of all Americans did not know that an 800 number was toll-free. So I had to build an industry, educate a population, and build a company simultaneously. I don't recommend that to anybody. would not do it again if I knew the story, but I did. So I'm looking through the Wall Street Journal one day, and I'm looking for ads that could benefit from our 800 number. And there was a little classified ad. I would not have clipped it out and sent it to our word processing department to start the series of letters, except it said something about closing. The ad was so poorly written, I wasn't sure what they were selling. But I sent it down to word processing with my own check, $14.95, I think it was in those days. And I said, they want $14.95, order whatever it is, it may be a book. But enclosed a letter that says your ad would do a whole lot better if it had an 800 number in it. So off it goes, and I frankly forgot about it. Two or three weeks later, back comes this sad-looking little thing, a horrible color on the cover, horrible graphics. You know, you flip through a new book to just sort of get a feeling for it. Pages shot all over my office. The ones that stayed in the book, half of them were upside down, some of them were right side up. And I thought, oh, well, I've been cheated again. But, you know, if you're going to get cheated, 15 bucks is a good way to get cheated. <laughs> I've been cheated for a lot more than that. And what was the book on? It was The Closers. It was called The Closers. The Closers. And who wrote it? The truth is I don't know. I claims to have written it, and I have reason to doubt it, but he's the one I give credit to in the book. His name is Jim Pick.
Americans. And he's the one we paid, and we now just own it outright, but for several years we paid royalties. So was this Jim Pickens just a guy selling books through classified ads? Well, it turns out he had sold the rights to the closures to two other guys, and the reason it was so horribly printed was one of them worked at a print shop, so they would wait for the owner to go home, then the three of them would sneak back into the printing plant and try and print some books, and then get out and clean up any sign of them being there, and then come back the next night, and they printed 500 books. So anyway, I picked up all the stuff around my office, gave it to somebody. I said, if you got time, get the pages back in order and put a rubber band around it. I might read it someday. I was just so fascinated that he would take your money and send you this junk. So I threw it in my briefcase, same briefcase that's sitting right here at my feet today, and that was over 30 years ago. And again, forgot about it. On the way to New York from San Francisco, I read everything on the plane. There were no laptop computers in those days and so on. So I'd start looking through my briefcase, and there's this thing, and I thought, this is good. I'll skim through it here, then I'll leave it in the seat pocket, and I won't have to worry about it anymore. So I started reading through it. Well, it was like finding the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was in bad shape and needed rewriting, but it was filled with wisdom, wisdom that I had learned. I mean, if I had had time to write a book and the talent, that's what I would have written. Hopefully better, but I would have written it. So when I get off the plane, I go to the nearest payphone, dial the number in the back of the book, and I said, Hi, I just read a book of yours called The Closers. And they said, Well, Mr. Gay, how are you? Now, this is before caller ID, <laughs> anything like that. I've got a payphone in LaGuardia Airport. How do they know it's you? I said, I didn't give you my name. And they said, well, we bought the rights to the closers. We printed 500 copies. We ran an ad one day in the Wall Street Journal. We sold one book. If you've read the closers, your name is Ben Gay, and you're from Placerville, California. Long story short, bought the other 499 copies. What were you doing at that time? Anything with holiday magic? No, I was long since gone. I was running the answering service, the National Communication Center, and a marketing company attached to it called National Toll Free. Okay, so you knew a good sales training material when you saw it. Sure. So you bought the 400 copies for what was the purpose? Just to give them away. Okay. They weren't worth selling. I mean, you know, you have to make so many apologies. So I just gave them to my in-house reps, and I said, if you got people out in the field that you're working with that you really like, give them this, apologize it's a condition, but just tell them that I found some really great stuff in it, but make sure you have a rubber band handy when you open your own personal copy. Do you remember how much you paid for them? You know I don't. Five or $600 plus freight. Then what? I figured that would be the end of it. I mean, this is the book that wouldn't die. A month or so later, reps started coming up to my office from down in the sales room saying, so-and-so in Chicago wants 50, so-and-so wants 100, so-and-so wants this. So I, again, long story, somewhat shorter, called back, got the national international marketing rights to it, rewrote it, edited it, recovered it, and turned it into the best-selling sales book of all time. All right, let me ask you this. So once you saw the demand coming in, you knew you had something valuable. Yeah. Now, I do a lot of interviews. Melvin Powers interview on book publishing. He sold seven million of the Think and Grow Rich and probably tens of millions of books, and it's sure. pretty fascinating. So you knew you had something valuable. You called him up. How did you negotiate that deal? How did you structure it just for our book, self-publishers? Well, what I said there was I want the rest of the books. I told him that in LaGuardia at the airport. And then I called back, and I said, there's people who want this thing, but i got to take the time to rewrite it and everything. It's horrible in its current condition. What can we work out? And he said, well, you, why don't you do all that and bear the cost of printing and give us, and I'm quoting from memory, it was either 50 or 75 cents per book that you sell. His attitude was, not Jim Pickens, but the guy Pickens had sold the 
rights to. His attitude was 50 cents is better than nothing, which is what he currently had. So for years, it was finally easier to pay him when we printed. In order to be printed 50,000 copies, we sent him a royalty check right then because we were going to sell them anyway. He did a contract? Anyway, he was just over the phone. We did reduce it to a contract eventually. Even that was dictated by me. There's never been an attorney involved. And then I started adding to the series. It was like Hershey's Chocolate, one of the great breakthroughs in my mind about branding. I walked into a Safeway store near our home one day, and I looked down the length of the produce section to the dairy section, and there sat a carton of about a half gallon of milk, dark brown with Hershey's written on it. And I said, whoa, what says chocolate better than Hershey's? And I said, that is clever. Well, everything we do now is the closers part this, or the closers teletraining, or the closers alert news bulletin service, or the closers update newsletter, closers part one, the closers part two. You built a brand. Yeah, we built a brand. It's all the same color blue. We call it Closers Blue. We add to it. I'm adding to it all the time. The success of the Closers, orders were coming in. How many of the first version have you sold? What we now call the Closers Part 1. The last figure I heard, and this was years ago, because it's been through three or four publishers, mm -hmm. me being the primary person in each case, different companies for different reasons, different printers. Years ago, the last figure I heard was $3 million. $3 million. Is it sold all over the world? All over the world. India and 20 six different languages. Now, when you first had it, were you self-publishing yourself? Still am. You are the publisher. Yeah. I've never really understood the term self-publisher versus publisher. Well, I guess self-publisher, you keep all the profit when you sell, yeah. and that's how it is. Yeah. Through a publisher, we get 10%, probably, of their sales after they discount it 55% to Ingram, a book wholesaler. $11.23, I'd make a dollar twelve, whatever. Versus, we print it, it's no secret about it, I'm selling information. Print it for about a dollar, sell it for twenty four ninety five, and keep it all. If the book wasn't there, how would your business look? Do you think your business or the brand would be there without the book? Oh, yeah, because I would have sat down and written another book. I decided I didn't want to grow old on airplanes. I used to do 300 seminars a year, some in-house, you know, for whatever company I was running at the time, others outside companies and so on, but about 300 a year. And, you know, you come back and your son, my oldest boy, is now 40, then gave the fourth, and he would have grown noticeably. You know what I'm talking about? You come back and he's taller than he was when you left. Yeah. So you weren't around that much. Yeah, I wasn't around as much as I should have been or as much as I wanted to be. How many kids you have? Three, one biological, two stepchildren, and now Gigi and I, Gigi is my wife, are currently raising or helping to raise the next generation, which are all girls and all nieces. So we have them run around the house most of the time from age 10 down to 20 months. They're all little girls. They don't smell. <laughs> they don't steal. They're more dramatic, but it's a whole different lifestyle for us. We really like it. All right, so you were glad to get off the road. Yeah, I do 24 a year. I promised you, you when I married her. We've been married 11 years this weekend. And I said, this hasn't worked in the past. Here's what I'll do. I'll do 24 seminars a year, no more. I won't accept any local clients. So, you know, in Marin County, as a young man with five major companies based there, there's always people who either work for you, supply you stuff, or are visiting from Ohio. Never got through a meal without somebody coming up and sitting down eating the tomatoes off my salad and saying, hey, can I just talk to you for just a minute, me and the wife and the three kids here. And so I said, I won't take any local clients and I won't give a speech within 50 miles of home. So in the little town of Placerville, I'm not Ben Gay, super sales trained. Mm -hmm. G.G. Ronzoni's husband, and we don't know what he does. It's the best decision I ever made.
great. Second only to marrying her. How can people find out more about you and learn more information on your closer books and your closer series and everything you have to offer? Well, one, go to our website. It's probably the best, easiest place to start, and that's www.b as in Ben, f as in Frank, g as in gay, the number 3.com, bfg3.com. Or they can call me, but it'd probably be better if they went to the website first so when they called, we'd both be operating off the same page. But they can call me at 800-248-3555. 800-248-3555. That's my personal toll-free line. I have it with me in my pocket all the time. I usually answer it myself unless I'm on the line with somebody else, in which case leave a voicemail. Yeah, when's your next seminar? The next seminar is down in the Bay Area in California somewhere with Eric Lawholm next month. Do you do seminars with Donald Moyne, too? I've done two with Donald through Eric. Eric and Donald are close. I'm sort of a lone wolf. I'll work with somebody else if they ask me to, but I don't go looking for somebody to work with me because I just did a six-and-a-half-hour counting lunch dinners and everything. It was, you know, eight or ten hours, but six-and-a-half hours of talking in Atlanta. And they said, we'd like to have you back, but I guess we've heard it all. And I said, no, you've heard six-and-a-half hours of about 120 hours of material. I know. It's already an hour and a half, and there's so much more to talk about. Maybe when time permits, I could do a part two with you, and we can get into some more of this stuff on sales and some of the techniques and the real meat on sales. I wanted to get to know you a little bit in your history and certainly the listeners can learn all the techniques through your products and your books and such, but this has been fascinating, especially some of the history on this. Well, thank you, Michael. A lot of people, I'm sort of the hand that shook the hand of. You don't get to meet Dr. Hill anymore or Earl Nightingale or Doug Edwards or anybody else. I developed a love for that in 1948 when we moved to Atlanta. My very first friend was a guy named Arthur who lived across the street behind the old Jarvis Plantation. You know, our house and all the streets in East Lake Country Club were all in what used to be the Jarvis Plantation's field. Arthur was born a slave in the slave shack that he still lived in behind the Jarvis mansion, which was still in the Jarvis family. A little long in the tooth by then, but still in the family. And right up the street was the Civil War veterans' home with about 100 guys who fought Bull Run and Appomattox and Gettysburg and so on. And so I used to ride up there and talk to them and ride around on Arthur's mule cart with him. He did yard work. And I just developed a love for meeting interesting people and finding out about the things that I couldn't have known about because of their age or whatever. And it has served me well and led to a very fascinating life. That's exactly what I'm doing. I mean, I love just interviewing. I'm truly interested, and I get to record that and just provide it to anyone for free. So, well, could we do a second part? Absolutely. Well, let's do it. This has been great, and I'll clean this up. Not that it needs much cleaning up. And if you want to hear yourself for an hour and a half, I'll send it to you, and I'm certainly going to share it with my listeners at Hard to Find Seminars, and I'd be glad to do another one with you. It'd be great. Let's just work out a date, and we'll do it. It's been a pleasure working with you. You're a professional, and as you know, you've probably been on some of them. Not everyone is real good at what you you do. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. For more interviews like this, go to hardtofindseminars.com. Thanks for listening to part one of my interview with Ben Gay III. For more information on Ben Gay's seminars, books, and products in the Closer series, go to www.bengaytheclosers.com. Dot com. That's www.benbengay, G-A-Y, V-T-H-E, 
Closers, C-L-O-S-E-R-S dot com. This is the end of part one. Please continue to part two.